friend or foe, sometimes you never know. Welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today we're going to discuss the case of Rachel Berkheimer while I drink my vodka and my Mio. Even as a small child, Rachel always had a huge imagination. She liked to pretend and make storylines for her dolls. She did all kinds of stuff. At age six, she could outshoot the boys on the basketball team. She ended up competing also in volleyball, track, and soccer. She ran so fast that they made her start sprints 10 feet behind the other students. She made friends very easy because, you know, she's goofy and she liked to mimic actors like Jim Carrey and she had like a range of voices that she could do. She was also a prankster. If anyone ever got mad at her, she would just try really hard to make them forgive her. She was thoughtful, beautiful, theatrical, and creative, and she was very independent. She was no pushover. She was a take charge kind of girl. She worked at Jimmy's Pizza and Pasta in Stanwood, Washington. She would write weekly goals on an eraser board that she kept above her bed, and she was always making some kind of to-do list. She had plans and she had goals. She wanted to go somewhere. She was so popular that in her room, she had friends just plastered everywhere. She just loved everybody. But when she hung Corey Haynes' obituary on her wall, that's when people started to see Rachel changing. It was a tough year for her. This girl had lost a total of six friends just that year. And this was due to drowning, suicide, accidental gunshots, when Corey, who was her closest friend, and he was the one who died in a car accident. That's when she really hit rock bottom. People would tell her, you know, it's gonna be okay. You gotta move on. She would let them know that he knew her better than anyone else on that earth and he was gone every time she turned around it was like somebody was gone it changed her it was a lot that is a lot of people to lose and she started to have trouble concentrating and she became depressed she did go to counseling and she decided she wanted to switch schools so she went from marysville philchuck high school to an alternative high school before eventually she just dropped out she left jimmy's pizza that june She would still make a little bit of side money doing babysitting, but she wasn't really interested in working or making money. That's mostly because she also changed the people she was hanging out with. It turned into a much tougher crowd. At the age of 17, that's when Rachel met John Diggy Anderson, and they met at a high school party in the spring of 2001. Several friends warned her about him. He had a long arrest record and convictions on robbery and drug charges, among others. Her father found out about the relationship when he about had a heart attack from opening up a $640 phone bill coming from the Department of Corrections. He said, you know, this man is not welcome in my home and you need to make some better life choices. She was 17. She had her own car. She lived her own life. She did her own thing. They knew there wasn't a whole lot left they could do anymore. There was just something about him that intrigued her. Maybe it was because he was a bad boy, you know? All girls go through that phase at least once in your life. Sometimes it's enough to kick you out of it. Sometimes you don't learn your lesson. Can you tell I know? 
But Diggy was in a group and they called themselves the Northwest Mafia. So right there, you kind of know you probably don't need to be hanging out with them. But again, she was intrigued. The pair did date for several months. When she broke up with him, they kind of seemed to go back and forth. He was always there chasing her, persuading her. He always wanted her back. And I guess here and there, she would give in. In August of 2001, Rachel was now 18. She was still living with her father, but she started to rethink her future. It was like the light came on. She didn't want to live this kind of life anymore. She wanted a diploma. She wanted out of her abusive relationship for good. It seemed like the depression might have been lifting a little bit. Maybe enough time had passed to where she could see the big picture. She even started to go to church with her mom. And she slept with a Bible to fend off nightmares that she was having. Weeks before all of this stuff happens, Allie Taylor, who was one of Rachel's like best friends and former teammate, she started hearing from Rachel again. Started to talk almost almost every day. She was ready to make the changes that she knew she needed to make. She was ready to go back to school, get her high school degree, and become a medical technician. She was ready. And one of the people who helped her figure all this out was her new friend, Maurice Rivas. He was also 18. They decided that they were both going to go back together and they were going to get their degree. He also happened to be a member of this little mafia club, but he wanted out as well and he wanted to better his life they said let's go back finish our senior year let's go to prom let's just hit the restart button they didn't want to be in the gang anymore they knew that it's not going anywhere except for behind bars or in the ground She was really excited about her new friend. She told her dad all about it, all full of smiles. She really thought that this guy was kind of maybe going to be the next Corey, the next rock. They could go and attack this together so they're not alone. Rachel knew if she really wanted to get away from all that, she was going to have to stop talking to Diggy. She stopped taking his phone calls. She stopped reading his letters. Her, Jennifer Langston of the Seattle Post Intelligencer and True Crime Daily, Letters were written from jail in December of 2001, and he wrote that she was the best thing in his life. He asked her to give them another chance and discussed marriage. In one message, he wrote, I love you, 33 times across the page, and then said, you are my world, you are my everything, you are my heartbeat, you make me function, and you also make me think. I don't think that I could or would ever want to live without your love. He also gave her instructions on how to get him out of jail, where to get a gun if she needs protection. He wouldn't like it when she would not respond to him. It made him very angry. And he admitted that his jealousy created problems in the relationship. Friends said that sometimes if she would be out and when she would come home, he would sniff her. Her hair, her clothes just to see if he could smell another man on her. I've heard that before. That's some crazy shit. I'm sorry. It's time to go. He told her, the only reason I do these things is because I don't want to lose you. I am obsessed with your love and you in general. I just don't know what to do sometimes when we get in arguments. I want us to be perfect. Okay, well, nobody's perfect. No relationship is perfect, but this is not okay. That's a red flag. Anytime 
anytime someone says that they can't see themselves living without you and don't ever want to live without you, but in a creepy way like that, run. On September 23rd, 2002, she told her family that she was driving a friend to the airport. She never returned home. On September 27th, her family called in a missing persons report, and sadly, her body was found in early October of 2002. She was beaten, held hostage in a South Everett garage by more than a half a dozen people. Like, what the fuck? They were all hanging out, dealing drugs, doing drugs. And she considered some of these people to be her friends, but nobody helped her. Nobody was there when she was stuffed into a black bag, carried from the garage, and and driven to her grave. There were eight people charged. Rachel was told before that she needed to pick a winning team when it came down to picking between the gang and some other people. And because of drug use, they got really paranoid that Rachel was snitching on them and was trying to have them arrested. Diggy took advantage of that. A total of eight people have been arrested in Rachel's case. Two have pled guilty to first degree murder and have agreed to testify in their co-conspirators' trials. I'm going to read you what the eight are accused of which was found in police reports, witness statements, and court documents. John Diggy Anderson, who was 20, he was charged with aggravated first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. He's being accused of the one orchestrating her kidnapping and holding her hostage at the garage, putting her in a duffel bag and shooting her in the woods outside of Gold Bar. John Allen Whitaker age 22, was charged with aggravated first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. He was accused of digging her grave, taking her jewelry, and burying her. Maurice Rivas, age 18, he pled guilty to first-degree murder. You know, what do they say? Keep your enemies... No. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. In this situation, I don't know who was better. He admitted to helping abduct her, dug her grave, and helped bury her. Matthew Durham, 17, pled guilty to first-degree murder. He admitted to helping kidnap Rachel and for being the driving force, literally. I mean, he took her to the remote area. He knew what was going to happen. He knew they were going to kill her. So, yeah, I'm sorry. You have you got to pay, too. Nathan Love place 16 come on y'all conspiracy to commit first degree kidnapping first degree rendering criminal assistance rachel was actually supposed to be abducted from his house but his father came home so they had to come up with a plan b really quick yusef kevin jahid 32 what is a 32-year-old doing hanging out with a 16-year-old? Can somebody please tell me that? Charges are first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, and conspiracy to commit kidnapping. He's charged because he lured her to the duplex where he lived and was helping them keep her hostage for several hours in the garage. Jeffrey Barth, 22, was charged with first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, and conspiracy to commit kidnapping. He was present when Rachel was held hostage in the garage and allegedly bragged about hitting her with the barrel of his handgun. Good job. 
Tony Williams, age 20, charged with first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, and conspiracy to commit kidnapping. He was accused of helping get the duct tape to bind her and for turning up the stereo to help drown out her screams. They came up with the timeline. She was supposed to go to the kid's house. His dad came home. Well, Diggy said, you know, he wasn't done with his plan. He actually threatened this guy that he was going to put him in a coffin. That if he failed to get to this other location, that was his job to get her there. At 4 p.m., that's when Matthew and Rachel arrive at the duplex. There's already a bunch of people there talking, drinking, smoking, playing video games. But he hit her, grabbed her by her hair, and then drug her back to the garage. And that's where she's bound with rope and gas with duct tape and a sock. Rachel remained in the garage while everyone else in the house is doing lines of cocaine and ordering pizza. They even talked about doing some kind of ransom. At 9 p.m., Trissa Connor, who is Kevin's girlfriend, arrives home and she finds Rachel in the garage. She's bound, she's gagged, and she freaks the fuck out. She got a knife and actually started to cut the ropes, but Diggy pushed her out of the way and started freaking out on her. She tells everyone they got to get the fuck out of the house and she's going to call the cops. But again, Diggy gets up in her face and is like, you're not going to do shit. So she never did call the cops. John and Diggy put Rachel in a black duffel bag and put her in the back of Matthew's Jeep. Matthew, John, and Maurice drive around for hours trying to figure out what the hell they're going to do. And they're waiting for directions. They're waiting on their master to tell them what to do. They stop at a trail in Mill Creek. And they leave Maurice and Rachel there so they can go back and pick up Diggy. Maurice was told to stay with her. He's telling her that he thinks everything is going to work out. Of course, she's begging for her life. She knows what's about to happen. She knows how crazy he is. And she just asks that they don't drown her. She doesn't want to be drowned. At this time, she's still in the bag. So she told Maurice that she was cold. So he zips the bag up again. I cannot. When they all get back, they have shovels and they start to drive around again. Around midnight, they arrive at a spot near Ryder Pit outside Gold Bar. And they started to look for a place that they could dig a hole. Diggy and John were digging. Maurice was just kind of hanging out over by the car, but... Matthew was waiting in the car and they let Rachel out of the bag and they untie her. Diggy tells John to take her clothes and her jewelry. She asked if she was able to keep a ring that was very special to her and he fucking said no. He tells her to kneel and she looks almost as if she was praying. So Diggy said, you're gonna be up there soon. He tells her to get in the hole and then he shoots her. Then he tells all the other guys that they need to help bury her. He threatened everybody on the way home, stating that if anyone talked, they would be in another hole. They left Rachel's car at a former boyfriend's house, trying to frame him for the disappearance. Maurice and Matthew burned the pillowcases that they had stuffed with her clothes and jewelry in it. And it was four days later that Rachel's family reported her missing. The gun was discovered in a pond with duct tape. It was also had her jewelry, including that ring that Rachel wanted to keep. Her clothing was in it and the shovel that they used to dig her grave. They found bullets at the home that match the bullets 
to that gun. Matthew Durham agreed to lead them to the area where Rachel's body was. It took two days for them to find her body. It took a total of 10 days of her lying in a grave for her body to be found. It took two for them to find her. You know, every person that was there had an opportunity to save her and none of them took it. None of them wanted to be that guy because everybody wanted to fit in. And maybe they were scared for their lives. I mean, I'm sure he's a loose cannon, so I get it, but you guys know right from wrong. Here's a 16 and a 17 year old's life pretty much done. Was it worth it? Five of the suspects took plea deals and lesser sentences in exchange to testify against John Diggy Anderson. John Whitaker was granted a new trial. He had won an appeal based on a minor technicality. There were reports of jurors bullying one another during deliberations. And then on Wednesday, one juror was rushed out of the courtroom on a stretcher after complaining of chest pain. Hours later, their alternate who took that juror's place and then the guilty verdict was announced. The family was forced to sit through the details all over again. But just a few weeks later, he was found guilty again and was sentenced to life. It's where you guys need to be. You know, nobody tried to help this girl. Nobody. There's just so many things wrong with this story. It's it's aggravating. It's just frustrating. People need to take these kind of behaviors seriously. All right, you guys, thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. Don't forget, like, follow, subscribe, leave that five-star review. Keep going with the word of mouth. I am starting to see the show grow more and more each week, and it is a blessing. I am so thankful. I love you guys, and we'll talk crime another time. Bye. Bye.